This is David Shields, and this is the Eat Kentucky podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. Professor David Shields is the Carolina Distinguished Professor at the University of South Carolina. He is also a lost food discoverer and preservationist, a southern food archaeologist. Dr. Shields is the author of numerous books, including Southern Provisions, The Creation and Revival of a Cuisine, and The Culinarians, Lives and Careers from the First Age of Dining. Next year, his book, Taste the State, will be published by the University of South Carolina Press. David is chairman of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, which has helped restore many of the key ingredients of the cuisine of the Carolina Lowcountry and the South as a whole. He has been awarded the Keeper of the Flame Award from the Southern Foodways Alliance and was a finalist for a James Beard Award. David and I talk about his childhood in Japan, a surprising connection to the CIA, and his reaction to tasting frosted flakes for the first time. Plus, we take a deep dive on lost and rediscovered ingredients with a Kentucky connection, including the legendary Dye House Cherry, lost for generations, but rediscovered on a farm near Somerset with a little bit of help from Eat Kentucky. Meanwhile, please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with the Indiana Jones of food, Professor David Shields. Dr. David Shields, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So you are in South Carolina. I guess you're in Columbia. Do you live in Columbia? That's right. Uh, I live uh, about a mile away from the university where I work, uh, and um, it's in an old neighborhood in the center of town. Yeah, well, I, I know at least roughly where you're talking about. I am an alumnus of the University of South Carolina from many years ago, about a quarter of a century ago now, which is a little a little frightening, but I did my grad work there, and so have walked the the streets of those uh, those old neighborhoods many times. It's Columbia is a great town, and uh, I miss being in South Carolina uh, very much these days. It's uh, it's a nice place to live, and and a, and a wonderful place to visit. Right. Uh, well, having visited uh, the University of Kentucky in Lexington uh, many times, it. Uh, struck me that uh, Lexington uh, shares many of the virtues and amenities that uh, Columbia does. Yeah, they're, they're similar-sized cities. They both are anchored by a university. You, you have the bad luck of having the government officials there, too, but uh, <laughs> we've, we've outsourced those to Frankfurt here in Kentucky. But, but uh, there, there are certainly some similarities. So how long have you been in South Carolina? You're not a native, I don't believe. No, uh, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., and spent the early part of my life in Japan. Ah, interesting. Uh, 
my dad was a CIA uh, uh, operative out there, and uh, so I spent uh, the early part of my life uh, in post-war Japan when there was no sugar and uh, very little Western food. So uh, my taste buds were actually formed uh, eating rice and misu and uh, Japanese vegetables. And when I came to the United States in the middle of the 1950s, I thought I had been poisoned when someone handed me a bowl of uh, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. <laughs> well, you you may have been. That was that may have been the accurate response. So that well, I, I wasn't I wasn't expecting us to um, to start talking about the CIA quite as early as this, but uh, I, I I think actually this is an Eat Kentucky podcast first for the CIA to, to enter. So, what was your father? undercover were you aware he was in the cia or was uh, uh, uh he his cover was that he was um vice president of the uh asia foundation which was a cultural entity but mm. he was operating undercover particularly in south korea this was uh, from 51 to 55 well that was uh, kind of a kind of a hot spot um uh, back in those days so yeah, I, I would think War, that yeah. that would be uh, that would be a fairly dangerous enterprise to be involved in yes uh, and i didn't know that he was uh, had been a spy until i was around 16 years old and uh, oh wow was well, reading the washington post one day and uh the post was blowing the cover of a number of uh, the operations this was the late 1960s uh and uh, I came across the sentence that well-known CIA front organization, the Asia Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that uh, that aha moment. It's like, what? And, and you were like, Dad, did did, did you know this? I <laughs> were you were you aware? Uh, well, uh, you know, you have to think about those days. Um, it was the time of James Bond and Aston Martin and Babes and. There was Dad, uh, a Dodge Dart, and my mom, and on some level, it didn't compute. That, that wasn't quite the image you had from the from the broccoli movies, I guess. No, so I, I did go in and ask him, and uh, he told me not to reveal it to my brother and sister. Oh, interesting. So, was he still uh, involved with CIA at that time, or had he moved on to uh, to other pastures? Um. It's unclear to me when his affiliation with the CIA ended. I know that uh, he was instrumental in the Pueblo in incident, which I think was in the 70s. So uh, he had at least some connection with the CIA until then. Interesting. So, well, that's, uh, that's very exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm sure was was quite a shock to you when you when you found that out right but, but you know in terms of our interests the really important dimension of you know the whole japan experiences was you know when i came back to the united states i had taste buds uh, which found american food uh alien and not very good and it wasn't until i went off to college at uh 
William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and tasted Southern food for the first time that I encountered, you know, something with the same sort of integrity and, uh, uh, I don't know, taste of the place as the Japanese food that had uh, shaped my taste buds. And so I became fascinated with uh, what made up uh, Southern food. Well, the, the 1950s and 60s, were not really a, a great time for popular American food. Things were sort of hitting yeah. the wrong direction fast. Yeah, a lot of uh, of uh, lime jello salads <laughs> with right. uh, canned fruit suspended in them with whipped cream on top. And uh, marshmallows mixed in. Fancy dishes had... Uh, had um, Beef stroganoff and um, beef Wellington was on the A A list and uh, things like that. Uh, very cos cosmopolitan, non local dishes. Right, and and of course, I I grew up in the seventies and remember eating a lot of that. <laughs> that was right. uh, uh, and, and I grew up in in eastern Kentucky, so it, it it's interesting because I I do remember and grew up eating a lot of what what we would consider authentic Appalachian food. But at the same time, uh, there was a lot of jello and uh, marshmallows mixed into things. And uh, Cooking with 7-Up was uh, uh, sure. big uh, Campbell's cream of mushroom soup lots, was the lots basic of cam- sauce. Lots of Campbell's <laughs> soup, that's right. So, so it's, you know, there is... There was this kind of um, this this push and pull there, although it was completely uh, unselfconscious. This was just food, and so you didn't really think about it. But um, but it was it was certainly, as we said, not headed in in an interesting or good direction. So when you when you came to American food, you were you were approaching it with kind of a, a a clean palate, I guess, as it were, or at least as clean as one could get. Right. Uh, I had no preconceptions and uh, called them as I uh, tasted them. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there was a lot that I didn't like. Um, uh, lunch meat in particular, mm. I found uh, very difficult to stomach. Uh, and uh, bread, you know, uh, that was the heyday of Wonder Bread. Uh, and um, I refuse to eat it um, <laughs> so but uh you know what what, what uh, that leads to is the fact that one i was uh you know had a professional job in a university and was a professor and could study things one of the things that i wanted to study was the real food that uh, america had one time grown and uh, wanted to help people bring it back so you're some decades removed from your time in japan and and sort of setting your your childhood palette do you still uh, feel that uh, affinity for the japanese food that you that you started on when you when you have it today does it feel like or does it taste like things ought to taste? Does it bring you back to that or, or have, is your palate so far removed from it that, that it's not? No, I, I still am a great 
fan and student of Japanese food. And, uh, you know, there, I had experiences. I remember in, I guess it was 1980s, walking in to a Japanese restaurant in Soho in New York called the Robata House. And there was a smell there uh, that greeted me when I walked through the door that caused a wave of emotion to come over me, and I was weeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was because of a smell. And I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't quite understand why I was having this emotional response, but, uh, you know, it was bringing back something primordial. Mm. Interesting. Well, you, you, uh, by accident, were well positioned, I think, to, uh, to, to make the explorations that you have made. And of course, obviously, by choice as well, you've chosen to, to delve into those things. How long have you been in South Carolina? Uh, I've been uh, there since 1983. Okay. And um, uh, it was the second academic job I had. I spent four years in Vassar and then came to the Citadel in Charleston. And Charleston, of course, was a a historic food city and low country food with its fascinating mix of Gullah African influences and Native American hominy grits influences and Euro influences from both uh, Huguenot uh, France and, and England um, produced a very rich historic cuisine that unfortunately had fallen on hard times. And when I was there in the 80s and 90s, you know, that was about the same time that Alice Waters had redefined American cooking on the West Coast. Uh, it was she who said that uh, American cooking should not be about French sauces. It should be about the intrinsic taste of uh, American ingredients. And one of the important things about American food was that uh, the genius of American horticulture went into the breeding of new vegetables and new tastes, uh, new fruits, new grains, and uh, featuring those, foregrounding them was you know, what uh, the project of American food should be. And so you had these uh, chefs in Charleston decide, well, we'll use all the local food and we have all of the ancient recipes uh, for Hop and John and uh, Perlou and Chicken Bog and uh, Shrimp Pie and all of the, the famous uh, dishes of the Low Country. And they made them, and the oldest generation of Charleston diners informed them that uh, there was no flavor in them, that the flavor was wrong. And the chefs were asking, how could this be? And it turns out that the stuff that was being grown locally was modern agronomic uh, cultivars and not the traditional Carolina gold rice or Benet or any of the other classic ingredients, but stuff that was designed in the last 
35 to 40 years to be hyperproductive, uh, transportable, uh, disease resistant, uh, uh, pest resistant, uh, and um, and have eye appeal. Uh, taste had fallen way down on the list of desired traits that uh, plant breeders were operating on. So it was, you know, it was actually the chefs and a man named uh, Glenn Roberts, who was a miller of uh, uh, heirloom grains, which sparked um, the first effort to somehow recuperate all of those lost flavors and lost ingredients. And I entered the scene around 2003 when I sponsored um, a conference in Charleston called the Cuisines of the Low Country in the Caribbean. And I invited all the producers and the chefs and the historians of food together to have a conversation. And in the middle of this group, uh, Glenn Roberts appeared and he said, you know, I wish it was a cuisine, but it's degenerated into mere cooking. Cuisine you know, as an expression of an intrinsic growing system that has a logic that uh, develops over time. And, uh, and we've lost the growing system that made low country food famous. And he, you know, turns to me at this point and says, uh, you know, you do research. We've lost so much, we don't even know what we want to bring back. You could help us with that. Could you do some research and uh, find out what, you know, the classic ingredients that were grown around here were. And, you know, I thought, uh, well, I could do a month or two of this and get free restaurant mm-hmm. meals for the next couple years. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't realize I had wandered into the deal with the devil scenario and that, uh, you know, I went down into the microfilm section of, the university library and started researching and realized I was absolutely ignorant about the subjects involved here. And well, so well, the reality was everybody was ignorant about it. No, oh, nobody, yeah. knew. nobody knew. Yes, exactly. And no, no one understood why certain things were grown together. And it was because of the understanding of the 1840s about soil chemistry and, uh, the observations that they had about, you know, rotations and successions. And uh, um, so uh, I spent three years actually putting together um, the knowledge base that uh, was used to bring back all of those ingredients. We organized the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation with Dr. Merle Shepard of Clemson and uh, and uh, Charles Duell of the plantations here, and, and Glenn Roberts, uh, the miller from Anson Mills. And um, we had the list, and we went out looking for, you know, about three dozen functionally extinct plants that had been enduring linchpins of both the agricultural system and the food around here. So you started looking for those foods or those plants and those varieties. Were were you able to turn some of them up fairly quickly, fairly easily, or was it 
was it all a matter of intense sleuthing? Um, the Carolina gold rice, because it had always been maintained by the USDA as a breeding stock, was relatively easy to secure. And what we had to do with that was, because it was a land race, that is a you know an old uh, old variety of rice uh, that was created through seed selection. It had a, a great deal of genetic diversity, and that diversity responded uh, in myriad ways to wherever it was grown. So you had a great deal of uh, I don't know variability in the rice when it was grown out. And uh, so we had Dr. Anna McClung, uh, the rice geneticist from the USDA, create a select strain of Carolina gold that maintained relatively stable um, uh, features when it was grown out. And uh, that enabled us to to bring back that absolutely central ingredient of low country cooking. And uh, that was the first Bene, which was the West African low oil sesame seed. Uh, that was really important uh, as a condiment, as a source for culinary oil, as uh, uh, a mash that was used in biscuits and as a roux for gravy. We brought that back uh, relatively quickly because populations of land race, the early Bene, still survived uh, in the Low Country, in Mexico, and in the West Indies. And then, you know, one by one, we brought things back. Uh, grains were very important um, and are very important for Kentucky. Um, oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so we did a great deal of research into them. And uh, uh, now we have every one that we were looking for except one. Mm. And well, that, one that's that, pretty good. And the one that we're missing uh, is also the most important, you know, sort of early, uh, early grain for Kentucky. Uh, it was white mammoth rye, the mm. original rye whiskey rye of Kentucky, and um, introduced from Russia by the ambassador Joel Barlow in 1811, and uh, becomes widely cultivated and becomes the standard uh, grain uh, in Kentucky. It's a huge uh, white uh, white variety of rye, and um, it the seeds stopped being produced in Kentucky and uh, around Prohibition time, mm. uh, 1919, 1920s. But uh, it was grown in the upper Midwest um, through the 20th century and in Canada all the way up into 1990. Oh, wow. Uh, so I know that it's got to exist in some, you know, grain geneticist collection up in Canada somewhere. I would imagine it would have to. And, you know, the, the distillers know about this now, and they're all lined up waiting for the restoration of this thing <laughs> to happen. Um, and I'm sure that growers in the state, uh, you know, a percentage of them are wanting to 
turn to the um, heirloom varieties, just like, you know, distillers like New Rift Distilling uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, what is it, Newport? Co- yeah, there are, yeah, just, just across the river from Cincinnati, there's Newport Covington up in there. Yeah, well, they, they're they using the, the classic old leaming yellow corn that was first uh, uh, improved out of a native corn that was collected uh, right there on the river at uh, the site that Cincinnati grew up on. So They also did a, a rye whiskey uh, using Balboa. Um, it was sort of a limited release they did, I guess, last year. Uh, so it was a, a different, uh, a different variety than than is typical. I think an heirloom variety. But I I don't know the specifics of Balboa, but I know that they've that they're they are certainly interested in older varieties. Yeah, there, there are a number of um, distillers out uh, working with old rye. Um, the rosin rye that came out of uh, the Ukraine in, you know, 1909, 1910 or so. Um, is being used by uh, some in Pennsylvania, I know. Uh, in uh, South Carolina, uh, we have uh, uh, a land race rye called Seashore Black Seed, a very heat-tolerant. Uh, rye that uh, six and twenty distillery has been using, and uh, and also the major rye introduced in the early twentieth century, Abruzzi, it was discovered by a USDA plant hunter in nineteen hundred uh, northeast of Rome, uh, and um, becomes universally planted throughout the South. A lot of Abruzzi was grown in the early twentieth century, and in Kentucky, particularly on on bad land, uh, rye will grow in areas where other grains won't go. So if you if you're growing on non-bottom land, uh, this is what you you probably right. worked with. Well, and and of course uh, would speak to why rye whiskey was so popular because it was you, you could. You could use land, and then you could use a crop that you otherwise wouldn't have. It was sort of a bonus, I guess. Right. If you're in the hill country uh, and have a you know stony soil, um, it it did just fine. So do you do you feel like at this point, and I will we'll want to talk a little bit more about the the Kentucky varieties, but looking at your original list and the idea that you didn't ha- really have a cuisine. Do you feel like at this point you do have a cuisine with oh, the yeah. work that you all have done? Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that um, the restorations that have occurred of the various ingredients, the field peas like the sea Island red pea and the rice pea and the conch pea, um, whippoorwill pea in Virginia, um, the southern chefs, you know, in the past uh, 15 years um, embraced all of the ingredients that were restored. And the southern cooking revival, in large part, was driven 
by the flavor of those ingredients uh, that, that came back. And some of the things are only, you know, getting up to commercial levels of cultivation right now, like the purple straw wheat, which was the original biscuit and cake flour wheat in the South, also used in, in whiskey making. Uh, seed for that is only now, you know, reached the level where it can be planted by, by commercial farmers for, for use. So um, I would say that, you know, the, there's only one category of, of uh, ingredient that we've had uh, a major failure uh, getting a hold of, and those are strawberries. Uh, all of the early southern strawberries have vanished from the face of the planet. The uh, Noonan's prolific and uh, Hoffman's seedling, uh, which were the standard growing strawberries of the 19th century through, through much of the South, are gone. They just don't exist. That's interesting. Why do you think strawberries particularly have have suffered those losses where other varieties haven't? I think uh, in the case of uh, of those strawberries, um, there was an aesthetics shift. Uh, those nineteenth century southern strawberries were sour sweet strawberries. They had an acid front and a smooth finish. And, and people like um, biting into a, a strawberry that had, you know, a really strong acidic component. And uh, in, in the 1920s, the great USDA small berry breeder, uh, George Darrow, created a, a strawberry called the Fairfax. It was a small holy sweet strawberry. And children loved this strawberry. <laughs> they, they didn't like the sour strawberries. And after 1950, most strawberry producers in the South had a, a U-pick component to them. And since kids were always hauled along in the families doing the U-pick, and the kids had decided preferences about strawberry <laughs> design and flavor. The, you know, the taste for a sour, sweet strawberry just disappeared. And you also had the other thing that kids wanted. They wanted a strawberry the size of their fist. So you had the breeding of these sort of hollow heart, <laughs> mm, huge yeah. strawberries with the styrofoam centers. Because, right. you know, a kid could grab the things and they were big enough to feel triumphant over. <laughs> I, I would think a sour tasting strawberry would really be fantastic. And, you know, we've we've had kind of a rise in the past number of years of of the, sort of the rise of sour candies. I wonder if if like a, if a sour type strawberry might actually be quite popular today if if you had such a thing. It certainly made classic ingredients, I mean, classic dishes like strawberry pie more interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the problem with strawberry pie is that it gets so heavily sugared and, and the strawberries are sweet to begin with. And you, 
you know, put cream on the top. It's just cloying the amount of sweetness you get. And even despite the fact that the sugaring of America has made us all addicts to sugar, uh, it's just too much. So uh, a little tartness to that strawberry pie would make it uh, uh, more interesting and uh, more welcome. Oh sure, I would. I would. I'm. I really like sour things, so I would love to try. A, and I also love strawberries. I would love to try a, a, a strawberry with a little sour kick to it up front. That sounds. That sounds really heavenly, actually. Well, you must uh, be overjoyed to know that you know the, the great Kentucky fruit discovery of recent time has taken place, where the famous. Die House Sour Cherry that was developed uh, in Lincoln County in the 1870s and was a major southern cherry, you know, up until the Depression uh, and was thought to be extinct has been discovered again down in Somerset. And uh, the artist Dan Dutton, uh, whose family land it was survived on, is now propagating trees. So the classic Kentucky pie cherry and cherry jam uh, cherry is going to be back. Uh, and uh, you don't have to depend on the old Morello or Montmorency's from, from Michigan anymore. You can pick your own and uh, use the taste of the state uh, to, to make the, the cherry pies. Well, I want to talk to you about uh, about that and, and some other Ken- Kentucky varieties you had mentioned. One of the great ways to eat Kentucky is to live in Kentucky. I can help you with that. I'm a realtor in the Lexington, Kentucky area with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, please contact me at alancornett at kw.com or eatkentucky at gmail.com. Now let's talk more about Kentucky, its food, and its culture. I am talking with Dr. David Shields, the University of South Carolina, and we are discussing the recovery of the South's cuisine through the rediscovery and reintroduction of old and often lost varieties of, of food. So the Die House Cherry, I remember, uh, I follow you on Facebook, and, well, and you, you uh, engaged in a campaign publishing notices of it, and I think it was actually one of your notices that brought Dan Dutton uh, in contact with you. Uh, well, I, I guess I was unaware that I had, I had played that, that kind of role. I remembered you posting about it, and it, of course the, the Kentucky angle caught my attention, and I shared it uh, on the Eat Kentucky blog, which was more active then than it is now, but uh, and and Facebook and so forth, and I'm I'm encouraged to hear that uh, I may have played some some role in that. But uh, tell tell me about the Die House and how it was lost and how it was found. Uh, well, the, it, it was probably a, a seedling that uh, was produced by the fertilization of an old English Morello sour cherry by a duke, which was a sweet sour cherry uh, that uh, was European. Uh, These are both old tree types. Uh, And 
uh, it has the tree shape of the old Morellos. It's a kind of semi-dwarf, uh, which grows kind of bushy, stocky, uh, and, uh, but it isn't as willowy uh, in terms of the branches as the red Morello. And the fruit, which is clear, transparent, and dark pink, and the skin and the pulp are almost opaque, um, uh, it, it begins to ripen in the first days of June, uh, which is well before the Morello begins to ripen. And it's much more characteristic of the old May Duke cherry. Uh, the Duke cherries... Uh, were an entire class of sweet sour cherries which have disappeared from orchards because they're not very productive, but they present a taste category for cherries which is halfway between the sour cherries, the pie cherries, and the sweet cherries, uh, like the, the Bijou and the Bing and uh, the Black Tartarian that are, you know, the classic sweet cherries in America. So uh, here's a, a cherry that uh, has a touch of more sweetness than the classic sour cherries uh, and uh, is early like, uh, like the Duke cherries and uh, is beautiful to look at. And as I say, it was, it was uh, uh, produced, it was sold uh, by the Stark Brothers, the very famous uh, Missouri nurse, Southern Nursery Company up until the 1930s. Uh, and then because uh, it is not so productive as some of the modern cherries, uh, it gets suspended at the time of the Second World War. And fruit trees uh, have short lifespans. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless, you know, the tree regenerates through rootlings, which was the case of Dan Dutton's tree, uh, uh, you know, having an old orchard survive uh, is improbable. Right. So, so his tree, I guess... Uh, Re regenerated through, I guess, benign neglect and just uh, yes, to grow. Uh, it uh, it uh, actually regenerated twice, grew adult. Uh, the original tree died, but uh, uh, you know, a sprout from one of its roots generated a second tree. Wow! It grew to maturity. It died, and a sprout, sprout from that is the basis of the tree they have now and they've taken all the root sprouts and have planted an orchard of them well that that indeed is an improbable uh recovery of that of that tree but uh but a blessed one too yes it's uh a benign providence has been uh, at work here so how how many trees does he have active at this point and how, how long does it tree take to grow to maturity in that situation? Uh, these are relatively quick drawing trees. So I would imagine that they would bear fruit within, you know, five years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I saw a picture of at least a hundred in two rows. And I know that he sold numbers of trees to various 
fruit people in the southeast who were interested in it. Um, so I, I don't have you know a, a hard and fast number, but they're they're out there and uh, they're proliferating. And uh, you know, once you get your own tree, you can cut cyan wood off it and uh, get it to root and uh, and uh, increase the number of bearing fruit trees that you have. Well, I'm I'm am certainly uh, I'm certainly tempted to uh, to go secure one from him. Yeah, by all means, do. Uh, the one thing that you have to watch out for is that uh, you know birds like those cherries a whole lot. <laughs> so you know, in in actual cherry orchards, you will have netting over mm-hmm. cherry trees, and you might right. have to do that. Since there are an awful lot of birds in Kentucky, there are, there are. Yes, we've uh, we've been having them circle around our patio and enjoying a couple of cardinals lately. But um, but they can also uh, be be a bit of a blight themselves at times on, on a situation like that. So is that how how um, geographically how widespread was the cherry? Was it was it grown in the deep south, or was it mostly an upper south, midwest tree? No, it was actually grown all the way into Alabama and Louisiana. I oh, mean, wow. nurse, nurseries sold it down there, at, you know, in the first decade of the 20th century. It was a universally grown southern fruit tree. It was that important. It, it's really extraordinary when you think about a, a, even a tree like that. I mean, you could think of perhaps strawberries being more transitory, but you think about a tree having that widespread uh, of adoption just to disappear and, and not, and, and almost be lost entirely. Yeah. And there's a particular question about that too, because, um, you know, uh, it's a problem to grow cherry trees in the South because most cherries require a certain number of chill hours. They have, it has to be cold in, in places. And, um, but what happened was that the cherry industry in America became uh, rationalized and uh, the sweet cherries all concentrated in the Pacific Northwest and the sour cherries in Michigan and Wisconsin. And uh, this growing of uh, stone fruit cherries in the, in the South just ceased to become you know, a commercial activity. You had very small uh, markets for, for your orchard product. Um, and so uh, it, it just um, caused cherry tree orchards to vanish from the landscape in the course of the 20th century. But here was one cherry tree that actually could grow in relatively hot climate. Uh, and it interests me that you know there were breeders who attempted to create uh, um, cherry varieties that had low chill Hours. I think uh, there was one in Texas A&M University that was called the Abilene that uh, required even fewer than the dye house. And, uh, but it never went commercial because 
there was never sufficient demand enough in the South to warrant mm. the kind of effort needed to create a, a nursery stock for them. Yeah, there just there just wasn't the market there. It was a, it it wasn't a grow it and they will come situation. You have to have some pent up demand. I would I would think. Yeah, it's, and, and, and you have to realize that what, what happens, too, is that the canning of cherries becomes immensely important. Whereas in the 19th century, one bought fresh cherries at the produce market. You know, the problem with that is if you don't sell the cherries, the cherries will spoil. But if you can the cherries, they're there as a marketable commodity for an extraordinary length of time. And so what happens is that cherry production sort of orients to canning of cherries. So if you made a cherry pie, a sour cherry pie in, in Lexington, uh, you no longer went to the produce market in the 20th century, but cans of uh, cherries from you know a Michigan producer that was sold to your local grocery store. Let's talk about some other... Kentucky varieties. You had mentioned a few to me. What what are some uh, what are some important recovered varieties, or maybe some important lost varieties that uh, that have a Kentucky connection? Well, I mean, one of the three great lettuce varieties uh, created in the American South, uh, the limestone bib lettuce, uh, is maybe the most splendid vegetable um, that uh, that was ever created in Kentucky. And it's certainly the most splendid uh, lettuce that was created in the South. The other two important lettuces are, are the Hanson out of Maryland, which is a heading lettuce that is an ancestor of uh, uh, most of the heading varieties like iceberg. Uh, and the other one is a really heat tolerant leaf lettuce called the key lime lettuce that can be grown in Florida and Texas and really hot areas. But the limestone bib with its buttery fl- uh, uh, leaves and its uh, and that uh, sort of interesting distinctive flavor that comes from being grown on alkaline soil is uh, is nationally famous. And it isn't just, uh, you know, people at the Derby eating their limestone bib lettuce with the bourbon salad dressing that uh, favor it. Uh, it's something that uh, if you're a Southern chef, and you're looking for a lettuce to serve in a southern-themed restaurant. Limestone bib is at the top of, of the list. And, and the, the bib family was a very uh, politically powerful family in Kentucky during the 19th century. Yeah, well, I guess they were located in Frankfurt, weren't they? Right there so. in the capital. Yeah, bib. Uh, there was a Senator Bibb um, who was, I think, served uh, at least Part of his term overlapped with with Henry Clay, so he was a contemporary of Clay's, I believe. Yeah, it's John B. So it was about 150 years ago that he started improving one of the old Silesian lettuces 
uh, into into limestone bib, uh, and um, it becomes a commercial thing, um, you know, by uh, f- because a, a commercial grower in Louisville named William Greenwine uh, uh, decided he wanted to take the lettuce that lettuce variety national, uh, and uh, it he makes his marketing push at precisely the moment when iceberg lettuce is, you know, rising to popularity. Uh, so you have uh, the choice between, you know, limestone being the yin to icebergs yang in terms of, you know, lettuce choices in the 20th century. Uh, and, um, what was interesting is that homemakers took up the iceberg while fine dining chefs embraced the bib and it became the sine qua non of restaurant salad. This is CJ Lotes of Garden and Gun and you're listening to the Eat Kentucky podcast. And you've also, you mentioned the, the Cincinnati glass radish. That's a, that's quite a name. Yes, it's uh, uh, the greatest uh, long radish that was developed uh, in America, and uh, and uh, what happened was the uh, glasshouse gardeners in Covington, Kentucky, across the the river from uh, Cincinnati, uh, were trying to produce uh, a radish that had a beautiful red color, a long sort of parsnip type shape. So there was a lot of radish and uh, a really fresh biting um, um, uh, flavor. And um, I think it was the Cincinnati seedsman, J.M. McCullough, who said... uh, uh, it is the handsomest long radish in cultivation, a, a beautiful glossy scarlet with a very small top and grows from six to seven inches long. The skin is very thin and the flesh crisp and brittle and of a delightful, pungent quality. <laughs> uh, people could really write catalog copy for seed catalogs back then. Uh, it's like the uh, the early this this the seed catalog version of the J. Peterman catalog. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, what was interesting uh, was that it you know it was eaten raw with butter uh, and salt uh, originally for breakfasts, and uh, it was the alternative to the French breakfast radish, which was widely cultivated in parts of the South. And um, numbers of seed uh, companies now that specialize in heirloom seed have had this uh, Cincinnati glass radish available. And the name glass and the uh, uh, name comes from the glass uh, greenhouses that the mm-hmm. things were originally grown in. You don't see a lot of radish eating for breakfast these days, but, uh, but maybe it's time for it to make a comeback. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're looking for the next wrinkle. <laughs> there it is. Uh, radishes for breakfast. Uh, 
you know, it, it's it's the kind of stuff that'll wake you up. I, I, I would think I would think it would. And so and then, of course, there's the the Kentucky Wonder Pole Bean. that you. Oh, yeah. You know, that was a, a famous pole bean that uh, that um, it was it was developed sometime in the 1840s and it was probably a, a genetic genetic sport of one of the old pole beans that were being grown in the deep south. But it had a couple of virtues that most of the older pole beans didn't have. It was really productive. I mean, a lot of pea pods would form on the plant. And it had a really fine taste. Um, uh, it, uh, it was long, green, fat-potted, uh, and husky, uh, and it had sort of dull brown seeds in the pod and bore all summer long uh, and kept an eating condition longer than any other bean. Um, uh, So it, it was something that attracted home gardeners and commercial produce market gardeners so that even today you know, 180 years later, uh, the Kentucky Wonder pole bean is still a widely cultivated garden vegetable, probably the best old pole bean that's out there. Now, you know, Kentucky is a, a wonderful bean man, a kind of wizard of beans there in Berea, Bill Best, Yes. So if you want to find out about Kentucky's bean heritage, you have a man who's written a book about it and uh, can supply seed. And he has a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, seed for rare family beans. Um, one of the things about um, seed saving and the restoration of ingredients is that there are two paths to go. The path that I've already described where you study and find out what was grown and were the enduring vegetables that made up the agricultural landscape and formed, you know, the culinary um, signature of a place. You can exclusively focus on those steady sellers uh, or you can look for the variety and seek out, uh, you know, the apples or the beans that uh, may have had a fo- small following in a very local place, mm-hmm. uh, and, but may have a distinctive taste that uh, might provide uh, something that's new. And, you know, in the case of apples, uh, Kentucky was a great apple growing area. And, uh, Kentucky's apples uh, are all cataloged in the famous Old Southern Apples by Creighton Lee Calhoun. And numbers of them are growing, but there is one apple that has disappeared that everyone is quite anxious to get a hold of. And it's the Kentucky red crab apple, Mm. which was the largest crab apple known to have been grown in um, pre-1950 America. 
and it was a superb cider apple with the revival of southern cider making there's a great deal of interest in old apples that were used in cider making uh, in Virginia, for instance, the old 18th century Hughes, H-E-W-E-S, crab apple is a necessary ingredient for a, a really high quality cider mix. It provides that sharp note at the top that gives, you know, your cider a, a, a bing to it. Right. And, and, um, and one hopes that the Kentucky red crab apple, if it survives has a similar um, sort of uh, cut to it that would give Kentucky cider uh, something worth uh, talking about. When was, I guess, when, when did it cease being paid attention to? I mean, we never know when these things actually are lost necessarily, but uh, they just sort of drift away. Yeah, it's difficult to tell. I'm sure prohibition uh, and the you know, sort of quashing of cider making in America with the prohibition of alcohol in the 20s contributed greatly to that. I mean, lots of crab apple varieties go functionally extinct at that time. Uh, and what's interesting is that it was... There was splendid paintings, watercolor paintings done of the crab apple by the women watercolorists of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They went out and painted all of the fruits being grown in America. And there's a splendid painting of this. So we know what it looks like. <laughs> and we know the size of it and where it was produced. So who knows, maybe someone... Uh, like Dan Dutton has a an old Kentucky uh, big red crab apple growing in their backyard, and still, or or growing in some lost uh, farmhouse or something. Oh yeah. So uh, you you mentioned the Kentucky red crab. What what are what are other varieties or uh, other plants that uh, Kentuckians particularly should be on the lookout for? Well, Louisville uh, had a wonderful, distinctive variety of big drumhead cabbage that it grew. It was called the Louisville drumhead cabbage. And uh, it was a big, flat, uh, you know, broad, flat top, broad, broad-beamed cabbage that was used for sauerkraut making in, in Kentucky. And, you know, the fermenting of, uh, of cabbage was something that was had a big following in Louisville. I don't know if it was that, you know, much done in Lexington and other places, but uh, anywhere where there was a strong Germanic component. Uh, you yeah, had, you, you have much stronger... Uh, German populations in the Cincinnati area and in Louisville, not nearly as much in Lexington. Right. And so this was, this was what you, uh, you chopped up and salted to, to uh, make your homemade kraut. And uh, it was a beautiful cabbage. They're wonderful 
photographs of it that exist that you can look up. Um, you know, there's a great resource if you want to do research on old seed catalogs. Uh, uh, it's called the Biodiversity History Library. It's maintained by the U.S. government, Department of Agriculture. And um, you can uh, find there uh, PDFs of uh, the seed catalogs for the old um, Kentucky nurseries and, and seed companies, so like Acres Seed in Louisville, uh, or the Blue Ribbon Seed in Louisville, or Brent Seed in Lexington, or uh, or Yop Seed in Paducah. Um, uh, I guess Louisville was the center of you know a lot of the seed industry in the state. Uh, you had field seed, uh, hall seed, southern seed, all out of Louisville, Walker, um, fewer from other places. Uh, but Lexington had, had more nurseries. So, if, if a home gardener today wanted to begin introducing the, these varieties into their own growing and their, their own uh, eating, where do you go to find these seeds now? Are they are are these commercially available? These the rediscovered varieties? Yes, um, there's several places where you go. Um, the Seed Savers Exchange um, out of Decorah, Iowa, has a very large offering. The Southern Seed Exchange, uh, which is uh, in the Piedmont of Northern Virginia is also really good for, for Southern seeds. And uh, uh, for Appalachian So True Seed uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, has numbers of things that uh, are greatly available. Uh, if you're looking for old grains, you're going to have to go to universities. Uh, and um, the University of Kentucky uh, has a wonderful wheat geneticist there, Dr. David Van Sanford, uh, who has a great collection of varieties that he works with. Um, and uh, um, I'm sure if grains are on your mind, he might be the ally you need. You know, in terms of... Uh, of uh, going out and trying to find things. I mean, Kentucky is a landscape that has had, you know, a lot of growing being done on it. And uh, I think, you know, uh, regularly Bill Best holds sort of instructional uh, gatherings on how to go about looking for uh, old tomatoes or old beans or old corn varieties. Uh, and uh, I think that they would be very instructive to, uh, to participate in. Um, I know that uh, when I went to Kentucky three years ago and was looking for um, taking a look at the dye house cherry and looking for other things like, like the red crab, um, 
that the local county agricultural agents were extraordinarily well informed about what the oldest uh, uh, farms in terms of family uh, ownership are in the county. And it's there that you might find something. There's, there's a truth that if a vegetable or a fruit was the sweetest or best tasting of its category, um, that someone somewhere will keep it going. And that's the reason we were able to recover uh, virtually all of the um, functionally extinct uh, ingredients of the low country. Good taste wills out, you're saying. Right. Now, one of the things we, you mentioned the books that I'd written, um, one of the things that I talk about in my book, Southern Provisions, which was uh, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015, uh, is um, the actual process by which we went out and found things like the Sea Island white flint corn, uh, how we looked, um, and what happens when you bring back a plant. Uh, what happens if the tastes have changed? You know, for instance, we discovered the classic old southern watermelon, the Bradford watermelon. But it's a 40-pound seeded melon. And we live in an age where people like seedless, round watermelons that are small enough you can stick them into a uh, refrigerator. Uh, so... Uh, you know, what do you do? Well, instead of trying to sell them as produce to the general public, you take that flavor and convert it to the other products that watermelons gave rise to. Rind pickles, watermelon molasses, watermelon brandy. And that's what Nat Bradford did when he brought back the Bradford watermelon. So you have... Another book coming out uh, from University of South Carolina Press. Tell, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it's called Taste the State, uh, and it's a profile of 82 uh, signature foods from South Carolina. Some ingredients, some dishes. South Carolina has uh, um, oceanic seafood. It has... Uh, the peach growing regions of the Piedmont and West. It has uh, the grain belt in the middle of it where corn is grown. Uh, and uh, it has a, a long history of diversified vegetable farming. So there are lots of vegetables and fruits and grains that have been on this landscape and a lot of things have been done on them. And the question for us was, selecting what we should keep and what we should jettison. Um, and um, I'm sure, you know, Kentucky, which has a, a wonderful heritage too, uh, would face a similar sort of choice in terms of determining what, uh, what things will get treated. Oh, I'm sure that there'll be a long chapter on Burgoo, but uh, um, 
You know, are you going to do uh, the famous old Kentucky hickory custard pie, which is not so much done anymore? Hickory nuts are uh, are interesting. I, I grew up having hickory nut pie uh, on occasion. My, my grandfather was a big nut gatherer, and his his winter hobby was to crack walnuts in the basement when he was snowed in. <laughs> and so we, we, he had the big stump, uh, sort of a log stump type thing with a, some sort of metal contraption nailed to it. And he would use that along with a hammer to crack open walnuts. And, and so we would all be given, um, jars of, of walnuts as gifts, black walnuts and, and then uh, every so often we would have good hickory nut years and he would go gather hickory nuts. And, and so we would have, so it wasn't nearly as common as the black walnuts, which were pretty much always available, but, but we would have hickory nuts all along. Well, cracking b- black walnuts is something that'll give you forearms of Popeye. Uh. <laughs> yes. And his hands were always completely, completely black uh, during that time. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, has such a distinctive flavor. Yeah, there there are trees that grow in Kentucky. Uh, you get butternut trees there. That the butternut is suffering from disease pressure these days, so that might be a delicacy that uh, is becoming endangered. Mm-hmm. Um, butternuts, but you know, on the other hand, we're getting close to the point where. Blight and Phytophthora resistant chestnut is about to be released. So the great days of Kentucky is one of the, the great um, centers of chestnut uh, um, foraging, um, maybe on the horizon again. And, uh, you know, there's a whole range of chestnut dishes that were once produced in Kentucky that have been, you know, off of the burner for a century. Uh, right. Chestnut souffle, deviled chestnuts, uh, chestnut skillet bread, chestnut soup, um, uh, chestnut caramels. I mean, th- there was a diversified, ramified cookery around those nuts when, when the chestnut was the dominant hardwood in the eastern forest. Right. It, it all... It's hard to imagine what was lost with with the loss of the chestnuts because it was such a dominant uh, tree and and obviously the nuts would have been plentiful. Yeah, there are sections of Kentucky where the roots of the chestnut forest are still alive and they'll periodically sprout a, you know, shoots, but the shoots will succumb to blight, uh, you know, after they get up around 10 foot. Uh, chestnuts are the fastest growing, straightest hardwood that's known. So it isn't just the culinary, but the timber industry would, I'm sure, embrace the return of the chestnut to Kentucky. Oh, absolutely. So you, uh, so that that release is uh, is relatively imminent. Yeah, I believe so. Um, there are strains right now that are being tested out in the um, American Chestnut Foundations. Uh, forest in Virginia that I think are really, really promising. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we will keep our fingers crossed. So. Yes. Uh, I mean, that there'll be a whole renaissance of the chestnut in Kentucky and 
you'll have stuff like uh, chestnut-fed um, ham. That yes, yes, that yeah, that's an that's an interesting point to bring up that you you, you lose. I guess we'll, we would say secondary flavors uh, uh, from varieties that that we maintain, but we don't we don't really know what they used to taste like either exactly. No, we don't. Um, so that will be uh, that will be an interesting recovery as well. Well, uh, Doctor Shields, I appreciate your time, and I uh, I hope perhaps we can continue this conversation later. I have a whole list of things to talk to you about, but I uh, I don't want to <laughs> to tie you up too long. No, the, the, I mean the foods of Kentucky are are a subject which have a vast uh, interest and. In, there's a lot to be said about them. I mean, we really haven't tackled the fruit world of Kentucky with the care that we should, and we haven't really talked about uh, the grains of the historic uh, distilling industry, which is right. something that we will have to do at some juncture too. Absolutely, we will. We will put this on pause and resume at a at a later date because I definitely want to to pick your brain about about some of those things. When is your, uh, your book on uh, South Carolina dishes uh, and ingredients coming up? Yeah. Taste the state should appear in print in spring of uh, 2021. Um, there is another book that, uh, uh, I published between Southern provisions and this one that's coming out and it's called the culinarians, which is, uh, the lives and careers of, uh, America's chefs, caterers, and restaurateurs from the first restaurant in 1793 to Prohibition. There are 175 biographies telling the stories of the greatest chefs in America. First time that that's ever been done. No one has ever given that kind of portrait of who the great creators of uh, American cookery are, the professionals. And uh, that's also a University of Chicago Press book. Um, it has uh, uh, some Kentuckians in the mix. So, uh, the hotels and restaurants of Lexington and Louisville, uh, uh, and also Cincinnati for that matter, are conspicuous. We will definitely revisit to discuss all of that. There, uh, there are... Um... There's quite a wide variety of topics uh, for us to uh, to explore. I will tell listeners that they can uh, that they can check show notes, and I will have links to your books and uh, and articles uh, related to the things that we've we have discussed here. So I appreciate you spending time with us, and we will definitely talk again in the future. Hey, it's it's great doing, Alan. You can find links to David Shields' books and information in show notes, as well as a link to the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation website. Please hit the subscribe button to the eKentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at 
eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.